Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Lauren Marks. She is the author of A Stitch of Time. It's just out from Simon & Schuster. And I'm thrilled to welcome Lauren back to New York to talk about her memoir. Thank you so much, Ron. And I'm glad you got the name right. A lot of people have the, the hiccup of a stitch in time. So, well well rehearsed. I, I practiced on that, it's true. <laughs> but it's actually, that's actually like a really good point to, to raise because it kind of in a way ties into the theme of your story, which is about how you had a stroke that gave you aphasia, which is the loss of ability to sort of manipulate and, and work with to, to work with language exactly yeah so you know the the title of the book isn't it's not meant to be a gotcha you know it, it really is how i would say that um, and how i represent a lot of my idioms the easiest way to sort of describe elements of aphasia i mean there is no exactly easy way because it manifests very differently in different people but even 10 years after the injury the certain elements that manifest in me are very peculiar and very particular. And one of those is idioms. I still can't really use idioms appropriately. Like uh, when I'm in a certain mood, I say it's just like a foreigner in my native tongue. Because, I mean, I understand when other people say them. I get where they're coming from, what they sort of mean. But when I try to do them, especially if it's long or intricate, I just end up summarizing. You know, like needle in a haystack. I've well rehearsed that one at this point but for a while it was like oh that thing that hard thing that you know thing inside that grass that's dry you know it's just it's it's a circumlocution and so a stitch of time is sort of those little small bits of language still disappear for me reading and writing and it's not so much um to, to clarify it's not so much that you forget all your words, which is what people often think aphasia is. Mm. It's like, oh, I just forgot all my words because mm. the words are, were still in there for you. It's just that you couldn't really get them out in a way that other people could understand. It's a little complex because partially that's true and at some points of the journey. But in the very beginning, they didn't feel like they were there because I lost my inner voice mm -hmm. for a while. It's returned now, so I can I can tell you the difference between its absence and its presence. I don't know when it came back exactly, but there was a period when I couldn't narrate my own experience while it was going on, and I feel very lucky by that, actually. It was a very uh, preserving kind of injury where you don't know what you don't know. You don't notice a deficit until you've recovered from that deficit. But again, I said cases of aphasia can be so different because uh, I met another woman who was 27 years old when she had her stroke. And she had a, a more traditional isomic stroke as opposed to the hemorrhagic stroke that I had. And I said, oh, do you remember that quiet? The quiet meaning, oh, when we couldn't speak and we couldn't uh, hear our inner voice either. She was like, oh, I never got that. I heard all those words. They were all up there. Like there was all this clatter and I... I was just trying to get it out, and the frustration was insane because I couldn't get all those words I had out. That being said, you were quite right. At some point, some just came back. A lot of it just came back. And some things I had to actually relearn, but some of it would just come in these spontaneous bursts, and I just had them again. Very, very complex, very mysterious, and what I had to relearn was quite unique to each case. So let's backtrack a bit and mm -hmm. talk about the incident that, that set all this off. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I only laugh because it, it still 
is a, a strange kind of story, but I was in Edinburgh, 2007. I was touring a show to the International Fringe Festival. Um, I was uh, directing a show that was a, a, a friend of mine was, um, she had written and she was starring in. And our other friend, we were all three of us traveling together, this little tight little group and doing all the sound design, all the steps, every element of it we, we had shouldered, including really disastrous PR. The show's not going so well. So on a night off, we really wanted to decompress. We went to this tiny dive bar off the center of town suddenly away from the throng of you know glittery teenagers uh, and we're just decided to do some karaoke and I was on stage with my friends singing a total eclipse of a heart total eclipse of the heart from Bonnie Tyler and I collapsed I was on stage I was singing I was smiling I know this because I've seen the recording of it my friend was recording it while we were doing it so it was, I was fine I was fine until I wasn't I was up until I was down so this aneurysm ruptured mid-song. Basically, the next real moment I woke up was after an emergency brain surgery. I've got, you know, a couple glimpses from that moment uh, until that second moment, but that was the last clear memory I had. And as you say, when you when you woke up in that second moment, that was the point where you, I can't say you realized you lost your inner voice because, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's not quite a realization, but you didn't have that inner voice and you know, just trying to make sense of of that experience, certainly in the moment, trying to make sense of it, but then even in retrospect, trying to trying to figure out how to describe that to people. Yeah, it, very challenging. I sometimes say that the brain is the organ of perception. So if there's an injury to that organ, there's often a, an injury to perception itself. So I just didn't know what was wrong, but I, because things didn't feel wrong, you know, I, I not having the traffic of an inner voice saying, I'm in a lot of trouble, what am I doing in a hospital, what, how am I going to get out of here, will I ever be the same again, without being spared that kind of merciless inner voice in those moments is, was pretty lucky. Actually, it seemed like the people around me, I had an impression that things were not good with them. You know, they, there was a lot of grimacing, there was a lot of crying, there was you know, moments and they were trying to get me to do certain things. You know, they wanted me to remember things. They wanted to comfort me. And I just, I loved having them there. I was lucky to have my parents fly over um, and my friends be there. And I was, you know, in Edinburgh much longer than I expected to be. I just didn't quite understand what was wrong with them. Yeah. um, As opposed to, instead of them thinking about, instead of saying, what's wrong with me, I more like what, what's wrong with them yeah i'm going to exaggerate it a bit yeah. here but it, you know in reading it there's this sense that there's there's much wailing and gnashing of teeth uh, <laughs> around you yeah. and again that's that's a bit of a hyperbolic description but yeah. you know there's a lot of emotional turbulence around you and you're there going like okay what's everybody upset about yeah and they did say you've had a brain surgery and i didn't think they were lying yeah and you're like okay yeah, i've had a brain surgery <laughs> <laughs> exactly but it didn't exactly feel that way either because mm-hmm. You know, what I had ever known as brain, to be brain surgery was went through a head. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I did have to have two brain surgeries, so people who read the book will, will encounter those moments. But in the, the first instance, I had what is called a coiling procedure, which is a neuroradiological procedure, which doesn't go through the head at all. It goes up through your femoral artery near your groin. So I was, you know, people said you had brain surgery, and I, I did this sort of head 
check, you know, my, my fingers through my hair. And I was like, okay, if you say so. But there was no scar, no headache, no anything that seemed to be related to the head. And, and why is this bruise on my thigh? Exactly. It felt like I'd been kicked by a bruise, but it didn't feel like I had brain surgery. I was just like, okay, they say so. Don't think they're lying, but we're, don't have the evidence. And even as I'm narrating now... That's incorrect. The way I'm narrating it sounds like I was going through that checklist in words, and I was not. It doesn't mean that I had lost my intelligence. I just wasn't going through that that kind of language checklist. It just in, impressions, information would arrive, and I would gen, like generally just move on the moment after. I just things didn't stick the same way. I understood when people said these things, but the emotional weight of it was was quite different than ever in my life and certainly not what it is now in addition to your own condition i think one of the other aspects of your life where that sort of detachment is seen strongly in the memoir is in dealing with your then boyfriend at first your parents are like oh your your boyfriend wants to talk to you and he wants to go and then he's on the phone with you and, and everybody's saying it's like oh this is your boyfriend and <laughs> there's a level at which you were like okay yeah this is my boyfriend <laughs> I'm not really sure how I feel about that mm-hmm. or how I'm supposed to feel about that. Yeah, I don't know what else to say that. You said that perfectly. That's exactly how it felt. It was just that detachment of, oh, this seems to be correct, yes. And then how do I fill in all these blanks? In the book, I, I focus on elements of how language helps us construct our own senses of identity. And I think that just losing all of these abilities for have a, a call and response is part of the reason my memory felt so disjointed. Like I said, I knew the difference between fact and fiction. Like someone said, you have a pink pony at home. I'd be like, mm, no. But I wasn't actually spontaneously remembering things. And I think part of that, now listen, the you know brain science is incredibly complex. And, and when there is a hemorrhage, any part of the brain can be affected and maybe some of these emotional distances and these problems with memory were partially related to other parts of the brain that was you know on that floodplain however that being said i don't have ways to access some of those other things and i do believe that language was part of that issue so if i had some memory issues that basal ganglia for instance that still wouldn't totally cover the complexity of the injury because I think not having that intimate, known repartee mm-hmm. with someone I've known for so long, a boyfriend or, or friend or, or parent or a sibling, all that stuff did kind of drop out. So I just didn't feel the same way about those things because there was no play script anymore. I do feel like I was very in tune when someone was helpful and someone who was not helpful, someone who was dear, and someone who was inconsequential. But I also didn't feel much like myself. I felt much more like a system. I was part of something system that wasn't so personalized. Yeah, I mean, you're very straightforward in in the memoir about the fact that it's like, you hit that point very early where it's like, look, I am not the Lauren Marks that existed before this aneurysm burst. Yeah. I am somebody else and you know, I can piece together aspects of the life I had before, but don't expect me to feel the same way 
or to behave the same way yeah. just for the sake you know, of continuity because <laughs> <laughs> right. we, we've had a pretty discontinuous experience here. You know, I think it's hard for people, though, because, and I want to speak because uh, these people helped sustain me for the last decade since this has happened. Mm-hmm. When you have an invisible disability, when you just look the same, it's very hard for people to accommodate for the change. And it can go really radical, radically different ways. So some people overemphasize the difference, or other people super underestimate the experience. They just either get, they cast, what do you say this word, catastrophize? <laughs> they either catastrophize or they sort of think like you look fine, so you are fine. Mm-hmm. So it, it's hard. It's hard for for other people, and I, I really appreciate that's not a, an easy journey. It's a journey that you were very adamant about wanting to, not just to be in control of it for yourself, but also to be in control of, I think, the portrayal of it. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I remember there's a point very early on, when you know, shortly after you've returned to the States after recuperating in Edinburgh, where your father's like, oh, you know, this has been really interesting, and I think I might write something about you know, the, my experience of, of being with you, you know, of, of watching you go through this, and you were just like, no, that's my story. Yeah, I, I, I still have like a little knot in my belly when we talk about this, because I'm so close with my parents, and when you were talking about that, I was feeling this both nodding and feeling this emerging knot, because I, I was in fact quite rude to my dad. You know, he, he was really coming from a place of love and interest, and he saw that I was rebuilding language and there were lots of little funny moments and there was really sincere moments and he's a writer too. So it isn't, it makes perfect sense that he thought, Oh, this is something I'd like to write about. And I did, I grew up at him. You know, I was just, I was furious in whatever ways I was capable of that level of emotion at the time. But I was, I was very upset. And I, I said, you can't, this is not yours because like there is a little backstory to that he was narrating the experience while I was going through it without me knowing it for a lot of the time he was sending emails to lots of people and telling me what was going on and I didn't know that and suddenly it felt like my diary had been broadcast and not only just my diary but like my diary with some mistakes in it you know because he was saying how I felt and often he was so wrong about it because I couldn't tell them I'm in this totally different perceptual place parents <laughs> I didn't have the language to convey like I think I'm having a different experience than you expect mm-hmm. I didn't know what they expected all I knew is that I was going through something so unique later discovering people who were the closest to me may have mistranslated me it was very upsetting now of course I see it so much more from his perspective but it was I didn't then I couldn't and it came at a really interesting time for you too because you know, even before the aneurysm and the aphasia, you know, you had trained as an actress, but you were hitting a point where you were like, is this really what I want to do with my life? Yeah. yeah. What else can I do here? Writing was one of the options that, you know, presented itself to you as, as, a, as a possible way forward. And again, that's before mm-hmm. the aphasia. But then even after the aphasia, that decision to, to write you know, at a point where, you know, you're, you're struggling simply to, to regain your control of language, period. You're like, I'm going to be a writer. You're, you're very uh, 
I, I love the way you asked that question. More like a statement than a question, but all correct. <laughs> I love the way that you were, you were reading towards what 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 I might have been wanting, but not able to, you know, follow through. I mean, it's not unusual for someone 27 in New York saying this is not enough for me. Do I take a a dramatic turn and how do I make this turn and I don't know how to do this turn. I promise you I did not want to write a memoir. That was not something that I would have wanted. I didn't even like to read memoirs at the time. <laughs> it, it is a weird choice to go from I have no, like I'm struggling to like conjugate a verb and to then think, oh, yeah, I'll be a writer. Great idea. Part of that is like the, it's a little stickier than that which is like I didn't know how bad things were I still had those issues like I couldn't express or understand how the injury was still affecting me but also what else could I do before the injury I was spoiled for choice you know everything felt really difficult and where what direction could I go and but then when I was really pared down to the basest elements like well there wasn't anything else it wasn't like oh I, I could do this I could do this I could do this I could do this I could be with this I could I could leave this city I could go to another you know, this one was I I couldn't do anything entirely independently anymore I mean I lucky for me I my physical self was okay I, I didn't lose my ability to um, walk or I could still dress myself things like that but I I couldn't manage an independent life so the fact was decided. I was going to be with my parents' house for a while. And I'd be with my parents in my childhood home for a while. Decision made. I was not an actor anymore. I couldn't memorize. So decision made. I, I, I couldn't go through a textbook anymore. So decision made. No longer PhD student. As these things were off the table, so to speak, then it was much easier to say, well, I'm a writer because I'm writing. I don't think that means I assume this book would eventually ever come out to any kind of general audience, but writing is what made me able to write. You know, the more I could write, the better I could write, and I needed to do it. So it's like this incredibly long experience of speech and language therapy for one. I mean, I did have proper speech and language therapy three times a week for a while, but afterwards, it, it usually ends about six months, at least as far as you can manage subsidies with insurance. And after that, I wasn't done. You know, I wasn't done with what I needed from my language, so I just kept doing this. This was a thing that I could do, so it is what I did. It becomes really clear in the memoir, too, that not only is this, you know, you regaining your control of, of, of language through writing, but you're also very much like, okay, something happened to my brain. Damn it, I'm going to understand what happened to my brain. Because there's a, <laughs> there, there's a lot of brain science in this book. <laughs> there was a lot more before an editor got to it. God, for, God thank them. You know, be, like, they, they really helped this book because I, I can get really much more interested in those details and momentum. Be damned. Mm -hmm. So thank God that there were people who were like, Yes, you have enough. I promise you, this can be sliced. It's fine. Yeah, you're right. But you know, the, like, I say in the book that a self is a moving target, and I mean that so sincerely. It's it's not just a turn of phrase, because the first draft of the book didn't have it in. First of all, I couldn't understand it. Second of all, I thought, well, who else could manage this story better than I? Like, why do I need to reference something else? And then 
then I did get more curious every step along the way when I became more capable of taking in different information in, in, in much more sophisticated ways. They were so important. I couldn't imagine the book without it. Over the years, it became what it needed to become. But I have to admit, I remember my first writing residency, which was uh, in Virginia, BCCA, and I had all my journals. So I was producing journals even when my language was still very fragmented. I had taken them with me, and you know, I just thought these journals are basically the book. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew I was going to narrate around them, but I thought these, this is it. This is the book, and now they are definitely the heart of the book. They're they're still in it, but it's almost as another voice, as a as as a very different voice. And I'm glad that it's there because it, it's something I'm in dialogue with, but not of. I'm not of that same voice. We're we're very different minds. Literally. Yeah, exactly. So in an earlier draft as well, I talked about my past self as she for a long time. The book was in the third and first person and really upset some people. They're like, well, are, are, do you really think you were a different person? I'm like, I, I'm just saying I don't understand that woman. I don't know what compelled her. It, it doesn't feel like what compels me. So it just makes sense to put it this way. But in the mediation of time, it's easier for me to live those multiple lives, feel a little more like her than I used to, you know, and, and that I can let the, uh, the third person be part of the multiplicities of selves that I happen to carry around, as we all do. Now, during the recovery process, when you were teaching yourself to read again, the life stories of two people, Helen Keller and Casanova, <laughs> proved really sort of therapeutic for you and let's talk about why that was the case oh god i want to ask you the question what what do you why do you think i did that uh, <laughs> seriously it's a you, you've got wonderful questions I, I don't know how that reads to someone else that does seem weird well i mean the helen keller thing makes sense right very it, you know without even thinking about it. i mean there's the easy oh yo inspirational figure she was blind and deaf and yet still managed to regain a way of communicating with the world mm-hmm Casanova is a little more <laughs> intriguing, but but yeah, and I have a theory, but yeah, let's hear what you know what, what you got out of Casanova first. Okay, but I do want to hear yours too. Okay, okay, so something is purely linguistic at, at like a very linguistic level. Modern novels are a lot trickier. Like people, you know, play with time and space, and you know, a postmodern novel. Is very different than the memoirs of Casanova. Like at a at a purely sentence level, he's very basic. It could be a long sentence, but it's simple. He doesn't like make these twists and turns that suddenly I don't know where I am and who I'm with. But what I what I felt like at the time was, you know, the figure of Casanova has all been monopolized by his romantic exploits. That's all we think about now. It's fine. I mean. There were a lot of them. I mean, I don't really remember how the book came into my hands. I think my parents gave it to me. I don't know if I'd asked them for it or they just, it was just by happenstance. But once I had it, I realized that, that he had lived this extraordinarily turbulent life uh, with huge successes, crazy successes for someone of his age, you know, in very rigid like social ways, his society didn't really have a lot of movement except for really extremely rare people. And he was one of these people. 
And I, I'm not suggesting that I, I felt like he was extremely rare. I was extremely rare. However, he failed tremendously. Like he had these huge successes, but like, like catastrophic failures all the time. And he didn't seem to have any complaints about it. He just seemed to think like, okay, so on to the next life, on to the next. I mean, when I say different lives, I mean like he was a Kabbalist for a while. Sure, why not? He decided he was like in the army, so he got himself like a, an outfit for it. You know, just well, sure, why not? You know, he became a confidant of the Pope. The Pope. <laughs> it's not like he like pretended he was a like someone who knew the Pope. He knew the Pope. Like he 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 broke out of prison several times, and it's so unapologetic. I mean, again, now years later, I think there are a lot of lives, especially women's lives, that were wrecked by his sort of reckless behavior, especially because of the context of what society was then and what reputation became when, when someone was in his wake. But he felt like a, a patron saint to me. I was just like, yes, like this. It's okay to fail. It doesn't matter that I don't have anything I had before. It's fine. Yeah. And, that, yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to say is yeah. that, you know, here was a guy who crashed and burned a number of times <laughs> and would always sort of like pick himself up, off, you know, always be like, you know, two steps ahead of, of, of whoever was chasing him. Yeah, and, <laughs> exactly. And they were a lot and, of chases. Yeah. And, and just constantly reinvent himself. And again, I mean, certainly, you know, the, the post aphasia, you know, post aneurysm circumstances required that sort of reinvention. But as we've talked about before, you were headed to that kind of radical reinvention as the girl you used to be, hitting that sort of like, you know, late 20s in New York, plan A isn't working out, what's my plan B? So there were, there were ways in which that was a model to both versions of, of Laura and Marx. Mm. I think I would have been a lot more uh, just deeply critical of a lot of those things that I naively and i don't say that in any way pejoratively but naively enjoy there was just there were a lot of simple pleasures wake waking up from this injury and relearning certain things and i have extremely good friends and i'm so grateful for their creativity and their devotion but at the time right after the injury i just i didn't need much from other people i was just very very inwardly facing, necessarily so. But I mean, I was quite fascinated by what was going on uh, in myself and I wasn't embarrassed by it, but I also didn't feel like I had to talk about it with other people. And I think some people must have assumed I was depressed. I was anything from that. I, I mention it because books like Helen Keller or books like Casanova, even though I had to read it extremely slowly, those were the people that didn't need me to explain myself and didn't need me to get better faster you know the expectations from people again there are so many bad stories about people who have injuries and then like their entire support group drops out because people are too intimidated or scared or whatever by and large that didn't happen to me but it doesn't mean that people didn't want me to go back to my life and I just didn't have that desire nor ability. So books were, were what they were for me at the time was, was what friendships had been for a very long time. And in terms of people wanting you to like just pick up where you had left off again, as a memoirist, you're writing about this with all the 
empathy and objectivity that you you can muster for everybody mm. but as a reader it definitely comes across to me that your then boyfriend sees this as a, a uh, as a reset button you know he's like great we can start the relationship all over again and take advantage of the of, of like whatever accumulated emotional you know capital we have mm-hmm. um and just forget about all the other stuff that wasn't working well, I mean, that's exactly, yeah, I, I, again, you, you say it so beautifully, why recap what you just said, but I don't think it's unusual or even unfair for someone to want a reset button. Again, like, as I said about a 27-year-old in New York and wanting something, a, a big change or, you know, there are a lot of relationships, especially in your 20s, that are, that have lots of ups and downs, you know? This relationship had a lot of love, but there were moments of turbulence too, and that that those ups and downs, well, they were certainly manageable when we were together. But some when something changed so dramatically, I wanted to. I had a very hard time remembering what had happened, and uh, and he was like, "That's okay, you know, we, you know, we start we start over." But he had an opportunity that I did not have. Like he got to remember all those things and pick and choose what he wanted to go forward with and I didn't get to have that choice mm-hmm. so I don't think it's in some ways it's a very pleasant idea to have a reset and a lot of people who are in long relationships when there's moments of crisis that's where they grow they become a much better couple it's a weird story I decided to go to this like interpersonal neurobiology department uh, uh, conference uh, interpersonal neurobiology conference in los angeles i was like oh my god I'm, I'm interested in these things i love neuro things i'm into biology i like people you know i mean i just thought this was super interesting it turns out i was like the only person in the audience who was not a therapist Did, i didn't know that what this kind of place would be but that's that's what it was and you know a lot of the discussions were about crisis moments of crisis and moments of growth because a lot of these things were you know couples counseling a therapist who worked in couples counseling or you know crisis from their children and things like that but in these crises all of the players the husband and wife the mother and child they have the same information they know what the crisis is they know what they had before and what they want to build together and in this scenario, it didn't, it didn't play out like that. You know, I, I don't think he was trying to be withholding in any way. I just thought he wanted to be a better man. And I think he became a better man, truly. And unfortunately, I wasn't at a point where I could receive that very well because I needed, I needed more scope. I needed to understand what we were coming from and where we were going. And, um, I, I understand now yeah. how I wanted to do that. It just didn't work for me. The idea spoiler of... Spoiler alert? Is that a spoiler? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, literally the idea of getting to be a better man and not have your partner remember the man you used to be. I mean, that's... You know, it's an attractive proposition, right. no? Mm-hmm. Of course you would it, want to do that. Yeah. I kind of would want that too, you know? If the, if it, if the situations were reversed... I don't know what I'd want to like revisit about shitty things I had done. You know, I'd be like, oh, great. 
we can finally move forward into this clear and beautiful day together. Uh, it's just harder than that. You know, what do you think when you see something like, well, I'm, I guess I should ask first, have you seen that movie 50 First Dates? The, oh, the Drew Barrymore? The, the, the the Bar- oh, yeah. yeah. That was actually kind of cute. Okay. You didn't like it? <laughs> no, I liked it. I, I was just curious. You know, have, you know, because, I mean, obviously that's a much more extreme case of, you know, she wakes up with amnesia every day. Yeah. I mean, I guess in a, you know, let's say in a broader sense, you know, rather than focus on one particular film, uh-huh. you know, when you look at depictions of of neurovariants. Uh-huh. In... I love the way you said that. Yes. <laughs> that's exactly what I use too. Uh, when you look at those kinds of depictions in TV or film or, or whatever, how do they strike you? Well, there's a huge spectrum of that. Okay. And a lot of people's understanding of disability, especially things that have a, a neuro base, is extremely sensationalized. I mean, the brain is fascinating. It, there's so many ailments that are so particular and so enthralling to me. I can understand why you'd want to create narratives around them and why you'd go to the far extremes. There's some that are uh, worse than others. You know, someone asked me about what was... I don't know. I can't even remember. It was something I hadn't seen. Oh, the Born Legacy. If I, I guess if it gets you interested in neurology, great. But don't assume that it's that simple. Like I mean, <laughs> I only get upset when people think that they have learned some sort of academic information from things like that. People think, oh, I know exactly what you went through because I saw the diving bell and the butterfly. Okay, that's a beautiful book. Absolutely stunning. And actually, the movie is incredible as well. That's not me. That's not what I went through. And unfortunately, the the big other in our society tends to be disability. And that is very strange to me because, and I say this so many times, I repeat myself, but I'm not the first person to say it either. But if we live long enough, all of us acquire a disability at some point or another. It could be short-lived, it could be chronic, it could be severe, it could be minor. But it's so strange that as soon as something sets us outside of that, fast track we just push it we don't we don't just let it be off the fast track and you know engage with it we just push it to the side and just plow through and there are so many issues about disability right now right in this country when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to self-advocacy you know it's just people just make assumptions about what level of cognition you're at and people should not make that assumption about anybody at any given point. You know, there were moments where my language was seriously disturbed and people assumed that if my language wasn't strong, my thought process wasn't strong. If I couldn't speak correctly, I couldn't think correctly. And I just watched people change their behavior radically in the course of seconds when I opened my mouth. 
people would, you know, give me a nod or a, they were trying to flirt with me or they were giving like a, a knowing like, oh, you and I are in this together. And then something about what I said betrayed my difference. And it, then suddenly I was just passing, you know, I was just, I was discovered. I was not someone of that. I'm not trying to say I lived through something in that way that was so horrifying. It really wasn't. It just was very doubling. I just watched people behave very differently in moments when they think we were on the same team and then they thought I was really on a different team. Mm -hmm. And I, see, I, I just see a lot of this vulnerability being neglected, ignored, misunderstood. And, that's, and that still happens, right? I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm sure it happened more in the early you know, years, but yeah, I, I imagine it's still. I mean, you're much stronger now than you were then. But you've, you, you know, you've talked about how it's like, you know, especially say in stressful moments or things like that. Yeah, and I still, I mean, we're having this conversation. The speed of speech is okay usually, but when we write emails back and forth, I listen to every word I send you. Same with text messages. Unless it's, unless it's one sentence, I can read all those words aloud. I have an app on my phone. I have software on my computer to have everything I write read back to me. And the same when I receive information. Because I still have daily manifestations of my language disorder. So it's fine. It's been 10 years. Now it's become so normal that it's not something I think about. But I'm aware when I think about it closely, like a conversation like this, that you don't have to do that. That other people, other writers, don't have to have a computer say everything back to them because they don't replace the word wide and wine all the time. I mean, it, 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 there was, a, there was a, a long period of time where I had like a list of my favorite mistakes, of, of word mistakes, because they're called um, phonemic paraphrases when you say words that have the same kind of cadence, the same amount of syllables, and have a, a similar sound, but don't mean anything like each other, like soul and sore, or is it wide and wine, cut and cud, you know, th things that just don't mean anything like each other, and things I would never make that kind of mistake before the injury, and why I really need the software, because like, you know, maybe I don't want to say I cud myself. You know, people are like, did she, wait, did she have four stomachs? I don't understand. She cud, she cud herself. Yeah, it, it, it still happens. It's not major. Unless someone doesn't see me, and then sometimes people make a big assumption about how damaged I, I might be if they just know that I had two brain surgeries. I had to call Social Security the other day, and they clearly looked at my case, and the woman was talking to me at the speed that you and I are talking to each other. And then she looked at my case. You could like you, you could hear the moment she clicked on the information. And then she was like, suddenly she slowed way down. And I was like, that good job. Good job. Yeah, I need this card replaced. I, I reordered it online, but um, is there any way to get it any sooner? That is a good question. Yes, we can try that. You we you found that online yourself. Good job. <laughs> I'm like, there is one small part of me that is grateful that she didn't go the other direction. I once had a you know really really bad 
experience with someone from one of those sorts of offices who kind of took advantage of the fact that I couldn't speak for myself. But like the extreme was not opposite was not that fun either. Is having someone assume that you just you're barely understanding them. So I don't know. There's so many interesting like the neurotypical spectrum is 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 very narrow and the neurodiverse spectrum is so interesting exploring that is is something i i wish people kind of had some more interest in there's a there's a lot there there's a lot of intelligence which probably leads into my next question which is what so what's next for lauren marx as a writer <laughs> i have no idea no idea i don't i don't know maybe i just like casanova i'm no longer a writer anymore maybe i'm a cabalist no i just i i have a young son I work in certain types of advocacy, some um, in the disability realm. I work at a, an organization called POPS, which stands for Pain of the Prison System, with children who have loved ones who've been incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, um, and they're all at, at high school levels. And basically, I'm, I'm interested in representing unheard voices in whatever way that's possible. And there may be some writing behind that, and maybe there may be a, a book about something that I don't know if it had anything to do with those elements, but a book is not what I'm thinking about right now. It, it, is a, it was a long process for this, and I I want to be much more direct in the work I do right now, and I don't want it to be about myself at all. I hope this book is helpful to people and it's interesting to people, but I don't think they need to hear any more about me for a really long time. I, I would like to represent other people's cases. I'd like to just... <laughs> do good in the world, if that's possible, however that manifests. If it's making you a really good latte with Starbucks, then maybe it will be that. I have no idea. I don't think it's a book right now. I don't know when it would ever be that again. Well, the book we do have, A Stitch of Time, is a, a very interesting and fascinating book, and one that I think will likely be helpful to a lot of people. I've been talking with its author, Lauren Marks, and you have been listening to Life Stories. If you've enjoyed this interview, I hope you'll go to iTunes and rate and uh, review the Life Stories podcast. Throw a couple stars at it, and that makes it that much easier for other people to find it and discover these conversations as well. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again.